You're listening to DraftKings Network. We tried to tell everybody. That it's going to be terrible? What did we try to tell them? <laughs> it was going to be cold. Really cold. <laughs> oh, that's too, yeah. No, Tom had a whole prediction. I mean, don't you remember? Oh, yeah, that's right. The prophecy has been foretold. I actually had to do an interview on Mad Dog Sports about that. About what? Prophecies. That I was a truth teller, fortune teller? Yeah, about the draft thing. Read the tea leaves of the all-star draft and you'll see things perhaps you hadn't seen before that are not available to the naked eye. And, of course, we had one of those moments. First of all, LeBron drafting Anthony Edwards first. Hmm. Interesting. It was a clutch decision by him. Hmm. Well, Anthony Edwards is up for his contract extension this offseason. Let's see how that goes in old mini haha. But then, obviously, LeBron goes on to draft Luka Doncic and Kyrie Irving, new Dallas Mavericks teammates. We know Kyrie's going to be a free agent this summer. We know he said a lot of nice flowery things about Kyrie throughout the whole weekend. No, it's always great to team back up with Kyrie. Um, obviously, you guys know how I feel about him, both uh, on the court and off the court, so um, it's always good to see him. Uh, you know, I'm very proud of him, very proud of the man that he's, uh, you know, becoming his life right now, and so um, you know, All-Star Weekend is, is always great to get an opportunity to be around the guys that you watch play, that you admire play, that you compete against, but that you just love, you know, the way they play the game of basketball, you know, so tonight was another uh, instance. I guess, guys, I'm keeping my third eye open here. It seems pretty obvious, though. I don't even think I need a third eye. We're talking Kyrie to the Lakers this offseason, right? (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, I thought the same thing, but as... I'm watching this draft unfold. You know, he goes with Joel Embiid, number one pick, which is interesting because he had to get the big. Size matters. And then he gets Kyrie with the second pick and still on the board. Giannis does not take Luka and LeBron James, of course, going to take Luka here. And everyone sitting at home might be like, oh, that's just the natural order of things. But I'm actually looking at the fact that 2024, the Lakers don't have a first round pick. To the Pelicans. Part of the Anthony Davis deal. That's right. And LeBron can be a free agent then. I also noticed that the Dallas Mavericks have their 2024 first round pick. And you might be asking yourself, why do I care? Why do I care about the first round pick? Well, it matters if LeBron James wants to play with his son, Bronny, doesn't it? Ronaldinho? Ronaldo. Hold on. Wait, are you saying that, yes, Kyrie is going to be playing with LeBron? And yes, Luka is going to be playing with LeBron? But not in L.A.? I'm saying there are mountains to be climbed. He climbed the mountain in L.A., got movie deals, TV show deals. He won the NBA Finals with the Lakers. But what about winning one in Dallas? The team that vanquished him in the 2011 NBA Finals. Wouldn't that be a great redemption story for him? Is that he goes to Dallas, links up with Mark Cuban and Luka Doncic, and Kyrie Irving and wins another one with his son, Bronny. You know what better way to make people forget about the 2011 finals and how he got embarrassed by J.J. Barea and Dirk Nowitzki? Cough, cough. What if you just win one in Dallas? And that's a great mind eraser. You know what the craziest part about this whole theory is? You said 2024, and my mind thought, wow, I mean, that's a long time from now. Is LeBron going to still be at that championship level by that time 2024 rolls around and then i looked at my phone and i realized oh yeah that's next year the draft order matters kevin durant picked book very early if not the first pick he could get in the last two drafts and now he's a phoenix sun the breadcrumbs are there we're just trying to give you guys an insight into how this world operates my assignment Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. 
Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but... all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the This is Basketball Illuminati. I am Tom Haberstroh, and as always, I am joined by the five-star generals, Amin Al-Hassan and producer Anthony Mays. Ladies and gentlemen, citizens of the Illumination, we're one year into this thing. Happy birthday to us, man. Can you believe it? 53 episodes. This is our 53rd episode. Feels like yesterday we were in the lab coming up with whether we should let the audience in on all the secrets of the NBA, the truth of the NBA. Should we go public with what we know, with what we see, with what we hear? And 53 episodes in, I feel like we're just cracking the surface. Cracking the surface or touching it? Scratching. Either one. Scratching the surface. You scratch the surface. I don't know what you crack through, but you scratch the surface. And that's what we're doing. We're scratchers, gents. We're scratching the surface of what this can become, what we're going to cook up for the future, what we're going to cook up now on this episode to celebrate our one year into this journey. Rachel Nichols, truth teller extraordinaire. Yeah. Our friend Rachel's coming on to the show from Showtime Basketball. Showtime. Of the What's Burning podcast, which she does with her pals, Matt. Barnes and Steven Jackson in the All the Smoke family, KG certified. We're so excited to bring Rachel Nichols onto the program the first time that she has been truth telling on Basketball Illuminati. But first. You are listening to The Agenda with Tom Haberstroh and Amin El Hassan. Took a while, fellas, but Russell Westbrook is officially moving locker rooms yep. from the Lakers to the Clippers. He stays home mm-hmm. in L.A. Do you think he takes the secret tunnel to get back there? He's got to. It's the shortest way. I think people would say, hey, you know what? Maybe you shouldn't do that. And Russ says, why not? You know, why not take the secret tunnel? Uh. I think buyout season is kind of like the second round of the draft. It's still the draft. Maybe a hit a home run here and there. It feels to me like a sad second draft in the NBA. Because you're reminded of the fact that Russell Westbrook, John Wall, Kevin Love, these stars of years past, they're now waved and then they get to start with a new team. And we get all excited. We're like JoJo the circus boy with a pretty new pet, you know? I'm sorry, we're like, what? Tommy boy? Oh, my pretty little pet. I love you. So I stroke it and I pet it. I massage it. <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love my little naughty pet. You're naughty. And then I take my naughty pet and I go. <laughs> oh, I killed it. I killed myself. <laughs> That's when I blow it. Something's brewing on the buyout market because we got Russ. We got. Kevin Love, former teammates, now finding new homes. Is it a buyout if you never were on the team to begin with? So in the Cody Zeller, Myers Leonard category. Oh, yeah. That's a good question. Who are you buying out? The bar. Like, hey, I got signed again. So Myers Leonard, two years after the anti-Semitic comment and surgeries, Signed on a 10-day contract with the Milwaukee Bucks, who need it because Giannis Antetokounmpo, while he is getting treatment on his wrist, it is not going to be a long-term injury. They hope it's not going to require surgery and he's going to be back sooner rather than later, but still they get Myers Leonard on a 10-day contract. We have Kevin Love in Miami. Let's spend some time talking about this because the Miami Heat have a sore need in three-point shooting. Yeah. Obviously, he's won a championship with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Perennial All-NBA player. He's on the backside of his career, waived by the Cleveland Cavaliers. He's going to have a jersey in the Raptors in Cleveland. And maybe he'll have one 
with the Miami Heat after all that's said and done? Because he could be the answer to all their problems, right? I mean, he could be. So we've talked about this before. The Miami Heat last year were the number one three-point shooting team in all the land, and their offense was glorious as a result. This year, offense is in the gutter, bottom 10 offense in the league bottom third of the league in three-point percentage. But more importantly, when you dig deeper, because Amin did a little bit of his own research, boys. <laughs> the Miami Heat are the fourth worst team at converting wide open threes. Those are threes that optical tracking data tells us the next closest defender is six feet or further away. And by the way, the three teams that are worse than Miami, Houston, San Antonio, and Charlotte, none of whom we would consider to be competitive teams in any way. Catch and tank. Catch and shoot yourself in the foot. You look at all of the three-point shooters for the Heat, Gabe Vincent, Duncan Robinson, Max Struess, they're all shooting well below their career averages. So you bring in Kevin Love, and I know what you're thinking. He said, I mean, I just looked up his numbers this year. He's only shooting 35% from three. Yes, but he's shooting 38% from three on uncontested three-pointers. And a year ago, when he was a much bigger fixture of this offense, he shot 44% from three on uncontested threes. The three-point shooting that you get from Kevin Love is going to be a boon for the Miami Heat. Then you throw in the fact that he's an excellent passer, particularly the long transition beginning passes that happen after a defensive rebound. And you say to yourself, for a Miami team that's been struggling on offense, but pretty stalwart on defense, Kevin Love really can represent a shot in the arm, both offensively by making shots and also by virtue of his passes. You know what's crazy is Max Struess, we assume that he's an elite three-point shooter. But if you look at Max Struess's numbers in his career, in 2021, he was 33.8% three-point shooting. Mm-hmm. This year, he's 33.8% three-point shooting. And in the playoffs last year, 33.1%. Last year, in the regular season, he was a 41% shooter from downtown. You tell me what's the aberration. Oh, maybe we've got a little bit of a Julius Randle thing going with Mr. Struess. That's the big problem is because they continue to play him and think that he is a Duncan Robinson project turned into a diamond in the rough, you know, the Miami Heat way where they pick up these guys off the scrap heap and turn them into an elite guy only to find that they turn into a pumpkin in the long run. And I think Max Struess, we're in danger of convincing ourselves that he's an elite three-point shooter. But now they bring in Kevin Love. They move Caleb Martin to his better spot. He's ill-fitted to be a stretch four, whereas Kevin Love, that is what he's born to do, is to space the floor, crash the boards, doesn't need to defend at an elite level when you got Bam Adebayo back there, and that team is still elite. They're a top five defensive outfit. This is a perfect fit for them. I don't know if I like the Russell Westbrook fit. No? Really? Why not? Did you know that the Clippers have the best five-man lineup offensively in the NBA? With Terrence Mann at the point guard position, according to cleaningtheglass.com, when you remove all the garbage minutes, the best five in offensive rating is Terrence Mann, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Marcus Morris, and Zubats. That five-man lineup is the best scoring lineup in the NBA. Now you bring in Russell Westbrook, to fix something when it's not broken. Hmm. You may ask yourself, why would the Clippers want to bring in Russell Westbrook if they already have such a high-powered offense with that starting unit? Paul George wants Russell Westbrook because, hey, I was an MVP candidate when we last played together. You also got embarrassed in the first round to the Portland Trailblazers. Oh, Tom, it was the concert. <laughs> Summer 2018, Paul George is about to be a free agent. Russell Westbrook throws a house party where Nas performs, and the invitation said the FOMO will be real. Guess what happened? Paul George re-signed with Oklahoma City. That concert, so many memories, man. It's all about the memories. All about the memories, bro. But Tom, the Clippers also have a moribund offense. 
Wouldn't adding Russell Westbrook help their offense? I don't think it does when you consider the fact that he is not a spacing guy and they're going to say, hey, you know what? We'll have him in a spacing lineup with Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, and Marcus Morris. I don't see it. I actually think he would take away from more efficient possessions with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And I like the fact that Paul George said, hey, the Los Angeles Lakers are an old team. We play a little bit more up-tempo. We're a younger team. Actually, the Clippers are the second oldest team in the NBA. And we're talking like Paul George and Kawhi Leonard are young spring chicken out there. They're not. They're not. Kawhi Leonard, what is he, 31 now? But he doesn't play in any back-to-backs because they're trying to preserve his body for the postseason. And Paul George himself is 32. LeBron James plays much younger than I think Kawhi Leonard does, right? So I don't think that matchup really works at all for the Clippers. Secondly, they already traded two second round picks to the Denver Nuggets for Bones Highland. So it's not even that they have a real need. They have the scoring, the super sub in Bones Highland. They also got Eric Gordon and they also have Terrence Mann, who's part of the best scoring offensive unit in the NBA. So I just don't see where there's a fit. And last time I checked, Russell Westbrook has an issue with accepting his role If it comes to a matter of, we don't need you to be the guy scoring 30 points a night, just set up other teammates. I just don't see it. I think one of the interesting things about this, you look at the Clippers offense and we see the Clippers offense has problems. What are the problems? This is a team that is bottom five in the league in assist percentage, the percentage of field goals made that are assisted. They are bottom 10 in the league in passes, just passes. I'm not talking about... Crazy assist. Just me to you, bottom 10 in the league. And my favorite stat, they are dead last in potential assists. And the reason why I love potential assists as a stat, you can't even blame it on we pass, but the guys don't make the shots. They're not even good at passing for the guy having an opportunity to attempt the shot. They are dead last in that category. This is a team that has a lot of guys who could put the ball in the bucket but not necessarily guys who are looking to make one another better. It's a lot of my turn, your turn, your turn, your turn, your turn, your turn. Mm. And they added Eric Gordon, who's a bucket getter. And they added Bones Highland, who's a bucket getter. And now they've added Russell Westbrook, who can make other players better if they're just standing still and allowing him to do everything, which, as we understand by the makeup of this roster, isn't exactly what's going on. Ladies and gentlemen... Keep your third eye open because I believe the betting odds for the Clippers to win it all went up after this news. Yes. But I'm telling you, fade the Clippers. Keep your third eye open on that one. Over the last five postseasons without KD, Russell Westbrook is shooting 38.6% from the floor, 29% from three on six attempts per game, and nearly five turnovers per game. His... Player efficiency rating in the regular season since 2018, 19.8. It falls to 15.9 in the postseason. True shooting percentage goes from 51 to 47. And that's what you're getting Russell Westbrook for, right? You're not getting him for the regular season. You're getting him because he's going to raise your chances of putting up a banner in Crypto.com Arena. And I don't think Russell Westbrook at this current form actually helps you in the postseason. I think he's a liability in the postseason. And I think Paul George remembers in that series against Portland where Russell Westbrook shot himself out of the gym. He was 16 for 52 in the final two games of that series against Damian Lillard when he got caught up in trying to prove that he's better than Damian Lillard. That's what you're going to expect here with the Clippers is that maybe he plays nice in the regular season, but come postseason, I don't see it. I don't see Russell Westbrook helping them. So I'm with you on fading the Clippers after this deal. Now, there's a couple other ones. Dwayne Dedman, let's talk about that with the... No, let's not talk about that. (laughs) What do you mean? Dwayne Dedman got traded during our show. That's true. He's a very important person here. The biggest news-breaking moment in 2023. I mean, I would venture to say probably the biggest moment in NBA podcasting history was Dwayne Dedman getting traded on air. Nothing bigger than that. 
I think the problem with buyouts is the buyout curse, where I think teams try to convince themselves that their guy that they picked up in the deadline, that it's going to work until it's too late. In 2011 with Mike Bibby, tried to make it work and then waited and waited and waited and realized it was too late. They pulled Mike Bibby out of the starting lineup and didn't play him, played Mario Chalmers, but by then... The damage was done. And I think that is what I would worry about with a lot of these buyout players. Teams are going to acquire them and then try to make it work in the playoffs because that's why you bring in a guy like that and you hold on for too long. The dream scenario for a buyout is Tim Thomas, 2006, right? Tim Thomas bought out by the Chicago Bulls, a pariah. He wasn't even playing for them. There was a lot of acrimony there. He signs a minimum deal with the Phoenix Suns and turns into the stretch four that they needed, hits big shots in the playoffs, and helps propel this team to a conference finals appearance. That's what the ideal buyout scenario is. But the reality is, I mean, even the Mike Bibby example, Tom, Mike Bibby played. Yes. A lot of times these guys don't even end up playing that much because they just weren't impactful enough in the short term. And then there's even less of a precedent of these guys turning into something that goes down the line, useful for the team that they play for post-buyout. Reggie Jackson's maybe the best case scenario, and he just got waived by the Clippers. Right. Our guest today is certainly not a buyout addition. She's more like a max contract player. I'm so excited to hear from our truth teller this week, Rachel Nichols. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off. My rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. You all think I'm late. Well, I'm not late. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity and the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. It keeps them up nights. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their minds. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. I'm going to tell the truth. Rachel is joining us here. The latest addition to the Showtime basketball team. She's got the What's Burning podcast with our friends, Stephen Jackson and Matt Barnes, and soon to be the headliner show, the interview program with Showtime basketball. Rachel, it is great to see you. Hello, friends. We have Jamal Crawford with us on What's Burning today. It's a party over here. It's not quite basketball Illuminati, but we're working toward it. Boom. Mm. Jamal Crawford. You guys have the star power and the set design also. <laughs> the stuff that we're lacking. Are you jealous of my basketballs back here? Because you have a pyramid. You have a literal basketball pyramid. I knew what show I was coming on. Come on. <laughs> Got it all. Rachel, what is it about Showtime? I saw you 
in Utah, and I told you, you guys have the brand that represents authenticity with the people. Why is that? Well, it's funny. You hear that word thrown around a lot. And if I never have to hear authenticity or self-care, that expression, either one of those ever again, (laughs) I'll be so happy. But it's real, right? I mean, that's what we're really getting at is those guys are always going to give their real opinion. Matt Barnes, Stephen Jackson, Kevin Garnett is here. Paul Pierce is here. Boogie Cousins is going to be working with us. These are guys who are not afraid to say what they think and not because they have some like, you know, oh, bravado, let me be controversial. It's what they actually think. And I love being around that. It, It just feels very true to what the game is actually about been fun. Why do you think that's been absent from most mainstream coverage? I think it goes back and forth, right? It's not like Charles Barkley isn't real with what he says on TV. Right. It's a conspiracy. You and I have always been very real with what we said on TV. This is true. Amin has gotten into trouble, Tom, for being so real about what he has said. So I think it's out there. You just got to find your people. And for me, a lot of these guys are my people. I've known them for so long, decades. We just sort of have great chemistry talking about hoops. We sit around and talk about basketball even when the cameras aren't on. So it's just been a good group. And when I was looking around at different places and considering different offers, this was the group of guys that made me feel like, yeah, this feels like home. This feels like a group of guys I want to spend time with. I just want to stop here and point out on the subject of being real and (laughs) me and Rachel having a show where we were very real. I want to remind everybody that I was the guy when Greg Popovich sent Manu and Timmy and Tony home, yes. and they went to Miami, <laughs> and everyone said the Spurs were so smart, I said, no, remember, Rachel, I talked about the pizza. Yep, you were the first to come out against load management. I think I was the one that he was yelling <laughs> at. That's possible. These guys, like Tom Haberstrow out here, say, oh, the Spurs are so smart. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the voice. Greg Popovich ahead of his time. This is a long-term play. <laughs> I'm less interested in a mean tuning his own horn about his triumphs and i want to hear more about the times he got in trouble rachel (laughs) we don't have that much time on this podcast (laughs) (laughs) well i remember one time i mean i don't think you're a successful journalist unless you get a call from the league office right before air there's probably a few times on the jump where Mm -hmm. here comes a league office who wants to talk to us and make sure hi tim frank we have our information correct before we go live (laughs) Mm -hmm. it's not that they program the show it's just they want to make sure we have their perspective that oftentimes has happened on the air working with you Rachel, is that we're truth tellers. We want to tell the truth and we want to cover the league in a way that is authentic and that is kind of no holds barred where we're able to talk about the truths and getting to the bottom of things, which is where I want to go next. LeBron James with the draft. It's obvious that he's going to link up with Luka Doncic at some point, right? (laughs) That's it. That's the whole thing. Everyone wants to talk round clock 24-7, but all we really need to know is just the all-star draft. That's it. That's how the league is going to be foretold is just in the draft order. You feel like that's the new Olympics? Like Team USA for the past decade and a half has been the bonding and jumping off point for some of these super teams. It's where Wade, LeBron, and Bosh got tight. It's where Kevin and Kyrie got tight. You think now it's just the all-star draft? Yeah. Remember with KD and Kyrie and Charlotte? Yep. Whispering in the hallway. Whispering in the hallway. Rachel, you're with me? I think guys are more uncomfortable with the draft than they thought they would be. What did you guys think of the vibe of the players while they were sitting up there? There was definitely a little bit of a nervous energy. I was one of the people who really wanted this to happen. Yes. I thought it would make it more competitive and there would be almost like some grudges out there for guys who Who didn't get picked felt they lasted too long right and instead it felt like everyone just tapped out on it someone brought this up to me today said maybe that's why they didn't have enough time (laughs) what to have grudges no they didn't have enough time to even build some form of chemistry or whatever with the guys that they would be playing with you know in years past we'd have the draft on the Thursday, I believe, and then mm-hmm. guys get in town and they have the all-star practice. They practice with their guys. They're in the same locker room. They're having these conversations, and we didn't have that. I don't know if that's the main reason why we got such an uncompetitive all-star game, but it stands to reason that it couldn't have helped, right? Well, for the draft itself, I would have liked them to go through it quicker. So I was really an advocate of doing a live draft for a couple of reasons. First of all, It's supposed to be live. It's like on the playground, right? I pick him, you pick him, let's go, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Second of all, when they did it even a week before, they had so many injuries, change hands in between. And then you have players replacing players that are not of the same caliber as the guy they're replacing. So they would have been drafted in a different spot. So the teams weren't as even as you'd hope. So there's a lot of reasons why I was psyched it was live. But the fact that they then drew that out into what, three or four television segments is what 
made it uncomfortable to me. Also going in that sort of weird order of let's pick the reserves first so that whoever's last on the reserves doesn't get their feelings hurt because then the starters will go after, except when the starters went last, that was weird too with Jokic and Mark Nen. <laughs> to me, I would not put your players in the position of having to sort of sit up there and have it drawn out green room style at the draft. I didn't love that, but I do love the live draft still. I just think it needs to be tweaked to have them on the court and just be like, okay, I take him, I take him, I take him, I take him. I think people go nuts for that. I think it would be like a total viral moment mm -hmm. and you could actually do it in order. And then the whole thing would be like done and gone in five minutes. And you could actually play a basketball game, which at times it didn't feel like was ever going to happen last night or two nights ago. What day is it? I can't even keep track. <laughs> Amin is not the person to ask what day it is. No. <laughs> Rachel, I always think about this is how would David Stern handle this? What would he do if some NBA player was like, I don't want to be picked last, so let's change the format. How would Stern <laughs> react to such a complaint from an NBA player? Yeah, I'm not sure we would have gotten any of this with David Stern, right? <laughs> I think it would be East versus West, the way it would be. I mean, to me, the not getting to practice together, I don't know. That doesn't bother me at all. These guys are all stars. They could play and hoop if they wanted to. The competitiveness is what was missing, right? Like Kobe used to go fucking at people. Mm -hmm. We just don't have that right now. There was a good all-star game in Chicago in 2020. Yes. They had that new ending for the first time. People kind of got into it, but that was it. And we haven't seen a lot of competitive games over the last 20 years. So is that a league thing? Could David Stern have like gotten guys to get their asses in gear? Or is it more that the best players have to decide they really want to play in the all-star game and put on a show and make it like, okay, who's the best around here? We got to get away from begging people to do stuff that presumably they love to do, right? The fact that we got to beg people to play basketball. Mm -hmm. We've got those screenshots of when Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum are going one-on-one -on -one and once or twice, haha, it's funny. But they kept doing it. And you see everyone else kind of standing around with their hands on their hips. It just killed me. I don't know that the players know, Rachel, that this isn't good. Well, that's true. I think they think we can fart on the floor and everyone's going to give us a standing ovation. And they don't understand that the vast majority of the viewing public is like, this is low quality. Well, I don't think the players feel that the All-Star game is very important to the health of the league. And you guys can tell me numbers wise. Do you think that if the All-Star game is not that good a product and not that well rated, how much does that matter for the health of the league? Well, I mean, we could start with how much Turner pays mm -hmm. to be the exclusive presenter of the entire All-Star weekend. They didn't say, hey, we'll take the game. ESPN, you guys can have Saturday night. They said, we want it all. Mm -hmm. Rising stars, skills challenge, dunk contest, three-point shootout game. It's all ours. We are the main ones. And ESPN, you can have the celebrity game because that doesn't matter. Right. Baked into whatever Turner pays for its TV rights is an extra premium for this event. It's the reason why in 2021, when we had a shortened season, Turner said, to hell with that. We're still having an all-star game. We'll do it in Atlanta because we're here. Yep. It should be a very simple financial conversation with the players. Hey, this is money in your pockets and ours. But beyond that, beyond the money, it's supposed to be an honor to be in this game. Every year, Rachel, what do we hear? Guys mad. I can't believe I'm not an all-star or my guy's not an all-star. Guys are crying about not being in the All-Star game. No, it's being an All-Star, but not in the All-Star game. They wanted the recognition, but the actual playing of it, they could do without. The most shocking thing for me was that we had 12 players who were either first or second time All-Stars. So they can't even cry fatigue. If it was Giannis or LeBron or DeRozan or Kyrie, I'm not saying it would be right, but I would get it. I've done this so many times. It's just autopilot now. But you got Shea Gilgis Alexander saying maybe if they threw some more money into it, it's your first time. But how much is that, though? Would you want to be the only guy competing hard in the All-Star game? Like, I feel like some of these guys are just sort of watching the example set and they don't want to be the guy who's, quote, taken too seriously when nobody else is. I mean, I think it's got to come top down, no? I think LeBron played hard, mm -hmm. given that he probably would have played hard in the second half. I think Giannis always plays hard. I think Giannis being hurt was an issue. He normally tries to give it a pretty good go. Mm -hmm. I thought Joel Embiid played hard. I thought Kyrie Irving played hard and took it seriously. I thought DeRozan. So I kind of heard that thing. And I'm looking through the older heads or the stage veterans and, no, there were guys who were playing, and then there were just guys, like Mike Malone said, they tried to get him to play, and guys just didn't care. What if you went international versus Americans? Maybe. Because I think people would care. Don't you think that the international players would 
go at it, which would then step up the American players? Sure. I think there's an element of xenophobia that we can stoke right there. <laughs> no, I think it's actually would be coming stronger in the other direction. I think that if you made it international players versus Americans, I don't think it would be like the Americans, like an old time hockey lore where they'd be like, ah, we got to keep those brewskis out. No, I think <laughs> the international guys would be like, fuck yeah, we're better than y'all. Like, look at us now. We got Giannis, we got Joel, we got Luca. I think the international guys would relish an opportunity to show the Americans what they could do. And I think that would maybe bring the competitiveness up. That's an idea I like. What if they know, the Americans know they'd get their ass kicked and so they're never going to let that happen? I mean... They would. Welcome to Basketball Illuminati, Rachel. Yes. Do the roster. Giannis, Jokic, Embiid, Luca. I'm just naming MVP candidates, by the way. I'm not saying international players. But I'm saying let's <laughs> actually do the starting five. Is Canada international? Do they get Shea? Yes, Shea Gilgis Alexander International. Okay, so the starting five would be Shea Gilgis Alexander, Luka Doncic, Giannis, Jokic, and Bede. Okay. And then you'd also have Pascal Siakam, Laurie Markinen coming off the bench. That's seven already. Okay, but give me the starting five on the other side. Steph, Kyrie, KD, LeBron, and ooh, Adebayo. That would be Bam, probably. That's an interesting matchup, no? Okay, so this is getting into another thing, which is big men in the All-Star game, kind of a wash. They always get picked last. No one really wants them. And we're missing point guards who pass the ball, like Steve Nash, Chris Paul, Jason Kidd. Those guys always made the All-Star game really fun because they got everybody else involved and passed. This era, we talk about how to fix the All-Star game also, the dunk contest is kind of in the same conversation, Rachel, where it's like, why don't the stars care enough to participate in the dunk contest? Why is it that we only get three possessions of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum going at it and really trying hard? Why isn't that the entire game? And I think it comes back to players don't want to get memed. Yeah. Losing the dunk contest, not being able to finish a dunk for five straight times and then getting booed. And then in the all-star game, maybe they don't want to try on defense because they don't want to get memed. Like the Chris Paul guarding Stephen Curry, where they fall over. Part of this is the risk averse nature of NBA players and humanity is if I'm getting paid millions of dollars a year, I don't want to lose to Mac McClung, right? Mac McClung. While we want to say we saved the dunk contest. I almost think he actually hurt it, destroyed it. He ruined it before it even got back. We've killed the dunk contest when he revived it because now no one's going to want to lose to Mac McClung. The whole Mac McClung thing was an interesting move for the NBA to me because that really opens a pretty big barn door that was previously shut. This is a guy who, he's not an NBA player. And that's no disrespect to him. Mm -hmm. That's just not what he is right now. He's going back after All-Star Weekend and playing in the G League. They signed him to a very temporary two-way contract so that he could be in the dunk contest. And that's it. It's not like he's on a team and he's at the end of the bench, but we just decided we'll throw him in. He's not an NBA player. Right. So all of a sudden then, if you are saying that we are putting just guys who are dunkers, who are around the league, or either YouTube dunkers or Instagram dunkers or G League dunkers or guys who that's the best part of their game. Okay, but that's a totally different dunk contest. But that's not an NBA product, Rachel. That's the problem. I'm not the one who put Mac McClung in the dunk contest. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I don't disagree with you. I'm just saying, to me, the fact that that happened didn't quite get enough attention. That's a very significant thing to have done. And the fact that he won and that he was so head and shoulders above everyone else, that just begs the question for next year, who is going to want to be in the dunk contest if you're bringing in essentially like a dunk ringer? That's what you're doing. You're bringing in someone who otherwise wouldn't be in the league, but he's such a good ringer at dunking. You want him in the dunk contest. So once you do that, I'm curious now who's going to even want to be in it next year. And what do they just have to change? You know, the meme thing to me, Tom, I totally agree on the dunk contest because you're just kind of competing against air. And if you screw up, then it looks worse. Right. Whereas with the game, if you did have one or two guys, given that what did Kobe Bryant always say about the all-star game and how we're really going to show who the best is. And I'm going to embarrass you if you don't play for real. Right. Yes. I think guys are afraid of getting embarrassed, but if one player out there made you look bad over and over again, you'd start playing defense. You'd start playing. So I think that could be fixed. Just not the dunk side. Let me ask you this, Rachel, because I think it's all endemic of the same sort of thing, which is this property all-star weekend is not being cared for by a major constituent, which is the players. The league has done everything. I think, honestly, I'm not a company man, right? I'm usually very pro-labor. But I think when it comes to making All-Star Weekend fun, innovative, creative, and engaging mm -hmm. for everybody, they've tried their best yeah. to tweak the rules, to tweak everything. 
And it seems year after year, it gets worse and worse of the players just not caring. It's a chore to them. And so my question is, whose responsibility is it to communicate that to the players? It's not going to be us. They don't like it when they hear it from us. That's why I was asking is the hinge of it is how really important is All-Star to the league? And if we think it's one of the key ambassadorship points for the NBA, that is a time where you get eyeballs you don't normally get, you get people who aren't even hardcore fans who just want to see the glitz and glamour, which the NBA sells better than anyone, and you buy in that All-Star is just a really important inflection point for the league as a whole in terms of the league's general popularity and culture and vibe, then yes, it is up to the top guys not at the Players Association per se, but the very top players, the Giannis's, the LeBron's, the guys who are leaders of the two teams that are on the court that day saying, I don't care what the fuck y'all, for the next 30 minutes, for the next 45 minutes, we are in here and we are going after them. And if they don't care and they lay us to the basket, great. But I think pretty soon we're going to embarrass them and we're going to have a real game here. And if you have that on both sides, that's great. The thing is, nobody is saying that that's a need. And when I asked Adam Silver during the All-Star press conference sort of about putting more into the dunk contest or the All-Star game, he made a point that actually defined the whole problem. He said, guys used to come to the dunk contest because that was their opportunity to get seen. Right. There wasn't highlights on your phone. There wasn't regular even TV broadcast. There certainly wasn't as much national television coverage as there was before. So if you wanted to show off that you were the best, some random night in Philadelphia on a Tuesday where only so many people were in the building and some guys trying to describe it in a newspaper that you may or may not get, doesn't compare to the stage of the All-Star game. Mm-hmm. Adam made the point that now, you know, John Morant makes a crazy dunk on a random Tuesday night, and we have all seen it thousands of times. So he doesn't need to come to the All-Star game to show off those moves. And that's really the question, I mean, to get to what you're asking is it's no longer important for the players, like for real, not because they're bad guys, not because they're not pulling in the effort. Just the fact of the matter is it is not as important to them in terms of their brand or what they can do or even showing each other to preen for each other. It doesn't play as big of a role. So the question is, is it still a value to anyone? And if the answer is yes, the league still needs it from an ambassador point of view, then that's what's got to get hit. Because individually, it's not actually valuable to those guys anymore. So I'm not sure I can fault them as like, ah, put forward a little effort because it's not going to do for them what they're already getting. Other than the overall, right? The collective. Well, that's the dichotomy, right? It's not an individual thing anymore. It's about that group, this ambassadorship idea. And if that happens, that's just got to come from leadership. Right. Yeah, we had Nate Jones on the show a couple of weeks ago. Love Nate Jones. Yeah, one of the best out there. He's got the truth serum on the fan experience in a lot of ways. He's seen behind the scenes how it works and in front of the scenes how it works. We're at a place now where there is an idea, a concept out there that players just don't care, period, about the product, is that they're taking games off and that they don't care enough to play through injuries and all that. And then very first question in the annual All-Star press conference with Adam Silver is about load management and whether they are going to talk about reducing the schedule. And it's all kind of the same discussion, right, Rachel, is how do we get players to play more or play at a higher percentage of these games? And how do we put the toothpaste back in the tube? Is that it used to be that the stars play 95% of their games in the regular season. And according to my research, it's now lower than 75% of the games in the regular season. And these back-to-backs, players are continually missing back-to-back games. We've talked about it ad nauseum. But you're someone, Tom, who's advocated for a shorter season, right? You want the 72 games or 70 games? What's your model? Yes. I I actually want 58. 58. Okay. So I'm a bit of a radicalist on this. Yes. Okay. Tom also hates money. Do you think if there were 58 games, guys would play all 58 of them or closer to it? Or do you think that it's one of these things that now that the habit is in of being built in and missing games and the culture of, oh, you got to play every game to be tough. But they would just miss the same percentage. They would only play 70% of those 58 games. It's a great question. I think we would have a much higher percentage of games played, mm-hmm. probably the wear and tear of the game. If you have more rest days built in, mm-hmm. it will lend more likelihood that they'll play in those games if there are no back-to-backs. I think that's the first place is get rid of back-to-backs, whatever it takes to get rid of back-to-backs. And Adam Silver, in a very lawyerly way, mentioned, hey, we tried 72 games a few years ago Mm -hmm. and we still saw a lot of load management days. That's my question, right? But the problem is 
that was in a very condensed season. It was. I think it was missing some context. There's yes, it was 72 games, but it was in 146 days, Mm -hmm. which is a much denser season than what we're seeing now with 82 games and 173 days. So if you do the math, yes, it was 72 game season. But the idea that we should throw the baby out with the bathwater because the 72 game season didn't fix the problem. We are coming back after the bubble season. We had a very short off season. Then you have the condensed schedule. I think that is an anomaly. We should throw that out. We should throw out the 72 game season. Forget it even happened in terms of data points, because I think that was such an outlier of outliers. I really do think if you did a 72 game season or even fewer than that, Rachel, you would see a much better product on the floor. And I know the league likes to talk about this too. Is It's not just about players missing games. It's the actual product that we get to see is that they're not fatigued. If they're not playing the night before, we get a better game. Mm-hmm. It kind of feels like we've pissed in the punch bowl. Lovely. Whatever analogy you want to say is you can't scoop it out and say, we got to fix this by scooping out. You can't do that. <laughs> we got to wash it out and come up with a new system. <laughs> and on that lovely note, I mean... <laughs> I almost threw up right there. Sorry. Thanks, Tom. I don't think we can do these small tweaks anymore. I think we have to rethink and have a conversation, Rachel, with the players and be like, we can't have you guys missing games for fatigue in a 58 game schedule. If we're going to knock it down to 58, there has to be some agreement with the players that we can't keep having these load management games. But to be fair, also, let me just point out, load management is not a player driven concept. It's organizationally driven. It's not like Coaches and general managers are begging their guys to play and they say, nope. We're now talking about three different things, right? We're talking about the all-star game and people giving effort in the all-star game or the dunk contest. We're talking about load management over the course of the season in terms of actual fatigue, actual injury management, right? That's kind of the similar stuff you're talking about. You're also talking now, I mean, you're bringing in when you say it's a management decision. Now you're kind of bringing in the world of tanking as well, right? We're load managing guys. That's a management decision. I actually think we've gotten tanking. The play-in tournament has done wonders Mm -hmm. to get tanking on under control. The Lakers are the 13th seed and they're gunning. Well, they don't have their picks anyway. So it really yeah, true. true. <laughs> I would say Houston, San Antonio, Charlotte, Detroit are maybe the only teams that are actually tanking. And everyone else, even Orlando, is trying. They're not going to get there, but they're trying. They're trying to get there. So I'm not talking about tanking so much as the problem people express over and over again is I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas. My closest opportunity to watch an NBA game is in Memphis. I go to Memphis. I drive there however many hours with my family. And we get a hotel because we're going to spend the night. And we go to a game. It's Clippers, Grizzlies, and John Morant, Kawhi Leonard, and Paul George all aren't playing. But you think that Kawhi Leonard not playing is a management decision? You know that's not true. Maybe Kawhi was a bad example. <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> but for a lot of players across the league, it is in concert with management. Not because it was dictated to management, but because this was the plan that the Support staff, the medical staff. Yeah, because of the way the system is set up. They need them for the playoffs. Sure. You know, you run some of these guys into the ground during the season. GMs don't get hired because of how they do in October. I mean, you know all the intrinsic problems with this, obviously. Absolutely. What I'm saying is a lot of times this is expressed as the players don't want to play. Yeah, no, I don't think that's true. Well, that's a PR issue for sure. Whether it's true or not, the average fan is thinking about the players rather than the faceless medical staffs. They think it's a player saying, I don't feel like playing. This is where we go back to the All-Star game though. And, and why you're making a good point, Tom, is that even if I'm John Morant and I don't need the dunk contest to show that I'm one of the best dunkers in the league, because I already got video all over the internet on that. And all the dunk contests can do really is just sort of shoot that down if I don't make it. If you had the group as a whole saying, okay, if we really put forth an effort in the game, it will wipe away some of the chatter on the other 300 nights of the year, right? So if in that one Sunday night all-star game, everybody is going hard at it, maybe that would take away some of that, oh, do the players really care feeling that's in the ether? I agree with the mean. I don't think that feeling is fair. And I don't think that's actually what's going on. I just do think there is some frustration. But to Adam Silver's point and the counterpoint, guys, he said we've sold more tickets this year than we have. Ratings are good. The concern of the media asking these questions over and over again, to his point, he doesn't think that that's showing up with what the fans are concerned about. I don't know how true that is or not. When I hear that, I hear newspaper people saying the internet is just a thing. It's no problem. People are still buying plenty of papers. I hear at ESPN when we're trying to tell people, yo, you need streaming living content that's on the internet for an internet audience. Say, no, no, no. Ratings are great. We don't need anything. People are $5.95 a month. 
that's what I hear when people say, no, no, the numbers are great. So I don't know what you guys are worried about. You hear the horse and carriage, the footsteps of the horse and carriage. You don't hear the Ford, the Model T. Yeah, the Model T is coming. <laughs> that's a myopic view of, well, this isn't a problem. Why? Well, look, everyone's still buying tickets. And as far as the ratings go, we know unequivocally the ratings are not what they were to pre-pandemic levels. And we know we can't blame the pandemic about that because we look at the NFL and their numbers are fine. Yeah. And you know what they don't have over there? They don't have a problem with people wondering whether it's fair or unfair, why the players don't care. Look, the NFL has a lot of problems and I'm not saying they've got it all figured out, but the one thing they don't ever have an issue with is the idea that the players don't care about the game. That part is unassailable other than obviously the Pro Bowl and you saw what they did. They just got rid of the Pro Bowl game. It's too important to our product to continue to transmit to the people. We care about our game. So if we have this one thing that we do once a year that contradicts that, we're better off not having it. Rachel, what do you think the NBA should do about load management? I think it's hard because, as you said, I'm going to use a different analogy than you did. You can't pour the ink back in the bottle. Is that a nicer <laughs> way to say that? My Lord. <laughs> um, in the punch. No, put the baby in the punch bowl. Yeah. Baby in the punch bowl with the toothpaste. And then let it pee. <laughs> there we go. One of those, you know, you can't sit there with certain guys and say, oh, I'm sorry, your back doesn't really hurt, does it? There's only so much that a team, quote unquote, can do or a player has leeway to do. I do think that sometimes players are being told, hey, we want you to sit on the second night of this back to back because how often do we hear in the NBA? We got to save the player from himself because the ethos is the players are supposed to say, I want to play no matter what. And then it's the team's job to step in and protect them and, and all of that stuff. So for me, there's a bunch of stuff going on in the league that I think is just as interesting. Like this would not be my front burner thing to talk about with the NBA right now is load management. I think we've had seasons where it was a much more front burner issue for me. I think largely we are getting guys playing the games that they were supposed to play. I mean, we had a year or two there where every Saturday night TV game was an empty bench. I mean, there was just nobody playing some of those games and, and that's changed to some degree. So I feel like load management is an issue. I feel like obviously having the stars play enough games and now having that family, disappointed when they drove all that way to Memphis to see their favorite guy play. I 100% think that's important. For me, it's not the most front burner issue in the NBA right now. I think there's a lot of other stuff going on. What's the most front burner issue for you? What's burning, Rachel? <laughs> yeah, what's burning? <laughs> I expected more teams to beg out by the trade deadline. I expected more teams to be sellers. I expected more teams to take advantage of the fact that it was a pretty hot market for sellers and that you could have actually gotten a lot of stuff. I think that a lot of these teams are disillusioned right now or delusional. Sorry. They should be more disillusioned. Anti-tanking. <laughs> Playing. I want them to be delusional. Well, I want them to believe, Rachel. Okay, but how many times do I have to have a conversation and pretend that the 14th team in the standings is actually going to win a playoff round? How many, how, many, how many times do I have to say that? Isn't that better than them just say, well, this season's over. Who wants my best player? Dude, I'm not criticizing it. I'm saying I am surprised. I am surprised that in in our NBA, where everyone is so salty all the time. There's no hope anymore in the NBA. We've seen a lot of hope this season, especially leading into and around the trade deadline. And frankly, I am surprised by the hope. I'm not bagging on it. I'm surprised at the amount of hope I saw in the NBA because you got teams. I mean, we're talking about Chicago this morning and Pat Bev and all of that stuff. I mean, Lonzo Ball is now out for the season. What does Chicago think is happening? If you're in the Chicago front office, what's your best case scenario here going on with this team and this team ceiling? Best case scenario is to get absolutely railed by the Boston Celtics. You go on this miraculous <laughs> play-in tournament run, you get to the first round, you play the Celtics, and they sweep you in three. They don't even play the fourth game. Say, you know this is a waste of everybody's time. Well, no, but that's my point. So if I'm a Bulls fan, by the way, I went to school in Chicago. Those fans, they come out. They deserve a team that is more competitive than it has been mm -hmm. in a lot of the recent years that we have been talking about them. <laughs> I want them to sit there and be real about what they have and that they went all in on a bunch of guys that the total does not add up to greater than the sum of the parts kind of situation. And mm -hmm. teams like that, I was surprised didn't sit there and say, okay, I know he's got a big contract, but what I bet we can still get a lot from Zach Levine. Let's see what we can do here to then take things apart and try to give those fans more of the product they're going to deserve long-term. To that point, I think the best thing you could say about the play-in tournament is that it's Wembenyama proof. Right. I thought that this year we would see every team. That's what I mean. Every team that was not a title contender. I thought more teams would be like, 
We're good. We're good. And it's not just Webinyama. Scoot, yep. the Thompson Twins, there's good players available in this draft. So, yes, I'm not complaining because I'm all for, yay, let's have some good games going on. But I was surprised at the gosh darn upbeat <laughs> approach of these general managers over this last couple of weeks. They have more hope than I do. When we're talking about the league and the league issues, Rachel, the CBA still hasn't been signed. They push back a few weeks again and again. You've covered lockouts before. Mm -hmm. You've been on the front lines on a lot of these labor issues. Where are we now in your estimation, the panic meter? And what do you think it's going to take to get across that finish line? Zero to 10 panic, 10 being like lockout for sure, or some sort of work stoppage. Where do you see this coming down to in the last couple months here? Can I get a negative integer? I got no concern. I get minus zero, minus zero concern. This deal is not going to get done. Everybody knows their bread is being buttered to the extreme with heavy cream. And I mean, this league is operating with the amount of money coming in and the amount of money going out to these players and team owners. Nobody is going to sit there and start bickering over little percentages of it in a way that is going to shut down the product. I have zero worries about a lockout. Do I think it's going to continue to get pushed? Possibly. We hear both sides this weekend say, now we really mean it. We want to get a deal done by, I think it's the end of March is now the current deadline. We always say that deadlines are what spurs actual change in negotiations. And when the deadline can keep moving, it doesn't really spur those conversations in the same way. There eventually will be a final deadline. Maybe this will be enough and it'll be it. And we'll hear by mid to end of March, like, hey, they've got a deal. But if it gets pushed again, that wouldn't shock me. I would be shocked on the floor, under the floor, underground, that they would ever actually do a lockout with this current scenario. Because I've seen so many lockout situations and this is not one of them. Oh, the optimism abound. It's not just with 14 seeds. Yeah. Do you really think there's going to be a lockout? I don't know. I've learned never say never. You don't think there's going to be a lockout. You don't. I don't know. I think the owners are going to come in with an ask that is going to appear to be outlandish because that's the history of this league is that they come into this thing and they ask for something outlandish. We get work stoppage and then the players bear the brunt because everyone just calls it a strike even though it's a lockout. <laughs> Maybe part of my strong feelings here is that I just don't think that players can never win a lockout, ever. They can never win a work stoppage, ever. The other guys have more money. So to me, in the end, it doesn't help the players to ever get in that situation. So in the end, they need to just get the deal made. Don't you think? When have players won a work stoppage? No, they don't. You're right. Well, they end up winning in the long run, right? Because the things that the owners think they want ends up biting them in the ass harder. But that's a different, you don't need a work stoppage for that. No, sure. Because this is how it always goes. It's never about something that's a big picture thing. It's all about an immediate concern. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, the immediate concern was all these players are signing and trading. Right. They're leaving us in free agency and they're signing and trading. And we want to take that avenue away so that we can pay them more money to stay. Before that, it was all these players are signing these deals that are way too big. We need to put a cap on how much money they can make. And now I think the new concern is all these players are signing long-term deals and then demanding to be traded right after that. We need to take that away. And I think that's going to be a major concern, particularly these owners that have been scorned. They're going to go into this. They're going to make it a thing. I think the players are rightfully, from their right, to fight back on that because when the opposite happens, when you sign a guy and you don't really like him, no one ever complains that the team traded him away, even though he thought he'd be there. So the players are rightfully going to fight back on that. But at some point, you're right. The owners are going to win because not only do they have more money, it's only 30 of them. It's 450 plus of the other guys. And getting that kind of consensus is a lot harder. Also, you shut down any of these team businesses for a year. A lot of the owners, they'll be just fine. They've got other businesses. Yep. Some of these teams lose money. So they actually get a little salary relief if you shut down for a year. Mm -hmm. player loses a year of his career. That is an entirely different situation. That is an unrecoverable resource. So I think that's one reason that ownership always has the upper hand in a work stoppage situation. They're better bankrolled. They have more money. They can withstand the losses more. But I do think that negotiations like this are already always about leverage and who has it when. So I will say during a CBA negotiation, it is my opinion that the owners will always have more leverage and that they will always sort of dictate the terms of play because a work stoppage doesn't hurt them as much as it hurts the players. Once that deal is signed, to me, the leverage flips because then you have the court of the public opinion and that is where players maximize and use their juice to be able to move teams if they want to be able to move teams or make enough trouble. We've seen James Harden twice want to leave teams that he has signed to and he has 
made enough trouble that the team has wanted to get rid of him. Kyrie eventually was able to do that as well. So I think that the leverage is on the player side once the deal is signed. But I do think in this case, we will get the ownership having the heaviest foot and eventually we will get a deal signed without any kind of lockout. Rachel, let me ask you a question. Since the last lockout, we have a lot of new owners who weren't there the last time around. Mm -hmm. Steve Ballmer wasn't around in 2012. The group in Minnesota's new. No, a big chunk of them. Utah and Phoenix. How do you think these new guys coming to the table, new people coming to the table will impact the league approach to this? Well, it's two different things. And I'm curious how you guys see this. I think on the one hand, you have these titans of industry in a way running these teams that you didn't have. The old school NBA had a lot of real estate developers as team governors mm -hmm. or families where it'd been kind of passed down. A cable company, right, had been passing down the team or something like that. These newer owners really are multi-billionaires in tech and other fields. So they think they are more used to just having what they say go. Then some previous owners, there's a little bit more of like, well, I said it should be this way. So it should be this way because that's what happens in their companies. Right. On the other hand, the other side of the coin of that is I think they have more respect for the players than owners in past sort of generations. I think that this group of team owners recognizes their fans of these players in a way that maybe we didn't see with some of the previous ownership and management of teams. I think there's more respect for what they do and that they're not just sort of pieces of property for them to move around. Would you agree with that? Yes, I do agree. I just wonder if the boardroom meetings, if they will reflect that, you know, I think they have respect <laughs> for it until the actual deal gets done or gets discussed. And then they say, eh, you know what? I got a B next to my name rather than an M like you guys do. Yeah. <laughs> I want to ask you, Jokic, we're having this annual conversation about Jokic and whether players respect Jokic in the same way that the media does, that he might be a unanimous MVP, third straight since Larry Bird, all this. And yet the players waited until the second to last pick before he was picked on the starters. Jokic decided to make himself on LeBron's team. <laughs> Where are you now? Because you've been very vocal about the MVP conversation and what it should be about and what it is about and how to fix that. So curious your thoughts on Jokic on track. I know where she's going. I know where you're going. <laughs> this is a layup here. I mean, it's like I'm leaving the podcast now. This is Jokic throwing that alley-oop to LeBron in the All-Star game. What are your thoughts on the MVP discussion and what it should be? You want to do it for me, Amy? You want to go? Do you want to do your ventriloquism? There should be two awards. Where's the drum? <laughs> you still have the drum? Other leagues have separated out who is the best player from who has had the best season, right? The NFL has their MVP, but they also have best offensive player of the year, best defensive player of the year. And those are stat-based categories. And MVP is who's the best player. So I think some of the dichotomy fans have is that they sort of say, well, is Nikola Jokic really the best player in the league? I don't think it's arguable anymore. Maybe early in the season, there was a little bit of like, oh, is there going to be voter fatigue? I don't think that's arguable anymore. I think this guy is clearly on his path to his third MVP. And I think the players are actually behind it. When you talk to players and you ask them who should be MVP, Jokic's name comes up more than anyone else. And I think part of that is if you look at the other guys who are in that contention, who would you say is number two right now? Would you say it's Tatum? Would you say it's Embiid? Giannis maybe, but now he's got the wrist injury. So Giannis's team is not the top team in the conference. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Embiid's team is not considered either one or two in the conference. I mean, not just actually it's not one or two, but a lot of people sort of have this break in between the top two teams and then the Sixers. I actually think the Sixers could get kind of interesting this playoffs. But I think the fact that not only is Nikola doing what he's doing on a nightly basis, but is playing on the top team in the conference. You know, I don't see a huge argument this year the way there have been in certain years. And sometimes, by the way, on your two awards, the best player is also has the best stats. And that certainly has converged throughout all kinds of eras in the NBA's history. It just may or may not be the case right now. Jokic, to me, he checks off the advanced stats, but more importantly, all the traditional stats. He's the best team in the Western Conference. He doesn't have another all-star on his team, so you can't even point to that. It's hard to even say the sentence because people in Denver will go crazy. Jokic has improved his defense to a phenomenal amount and it can also be true. He's not the best defensive player in this MVP discussion. Those two things coexist. Mm -hmm. And part of the, your MVP choice will probably depend on how much do you weigh defense in there, given that Jokic is better on defense than he has been before and that he is in no way a weakness on defense the way he was at some points earlier in his career. But you also can't say that he's the best at it of the MVP candidates. And there are people who will take that into account as well. I'm not one of them. I'm just saying that if you're trying to drum up a debate, right? I mean, is there a debate? Do you guys feel that there's some big argument right now? I don't. You know what it is? People are arguing more against the three straight. Yes. What it represents than what 
it is. But is that actually happening? Oh, yeah. Okay, so I know that Tim Bontemps does like a straw poll of voters, right? Right. And the last one he had, it was like running away Jokic. It wasn't like a close argument. Right. Where are you guys hearing? I haven't heard players really been like, oh, Jokic is a fraud. Nick Wright. Not a fraud. (laughs) It's Nick Wright. Yeah. Nick Wright is leading this. Okay, but a couple media members. And by the way, Nick, of course, has completely a voice in the space to give his opinion on stuff. I'm just saying I haven't heard. Sometimes you hear players talking about this stuff and they're like, come on, you know, whatever. You're not hearing that on the player level this year. I think that Joel Embiid continues to have a very strong case for the way he plays. And I understand the Philly fans frustration in not thinking that this is a closer conversation. I just know that when I listen to the people who vote and they're already talking about who they're voting for, the numbers don't seem close. Well, the MVP of the NBA media, that's Rachel Nichols. Thank you so much for joining us on Illuminati. And I appreciate, for those who can't see, the Illuminati. The triangle of basketball. The triangle in the background. Dun, dun, dun. Thanks for thinking of us on that. <laughs> <laughs> She's motioning right now a third eye <laughs> out of her forehead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There you go. I got you. I'm charmed to be with you guys as always. Can you tell the people where they can find all of Rachel Nichols? All of my projects. What's burning? Wherever you get your podcast, much like this one. Also, it's on YouTube up all week. And we have a show called Headliners coming this spring, talking to and about some of the biggest and best names in the NBA. That will be on Showtime on your TV and also streaming as well. We're very digital over here. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, guys. We talked about it. You were going to be boots on the ground in Salt Lake City. That's right. You were going to be in the room where it happens. It might be with bad music in the background. It might be a 1 a.m. last call, but you were there. What can you tell us from your time at the NBA All-Star Illuminati convention? First of all, the room where it happens happened to be a room where I was not at most of the time. Oh, no. I ended up being in the wrong rooms. Room where it didn't happen. Good rooms, but rooms where it didn't quite happen. So instead of being in the rooms, I went bobsledding. Oh, cool runnings. Well, here's the funny thing, guys. I didn't know what bobsledding meant. They told me we're going bobsledding, and I thought of a toboggan. Yeah. Like in the Christmas story. That's just sledding. There's no Bob in that. I did not know. I just figured that's a bobsled, right? And then we got to the Olympic Park in Park City, and I realized bobsledding is cool runnings. It's helmets. It's a sleek vehicle. It's getting cozy with your fellow bobsledders. Super cozy. Did not know about that part either. Legs spread and around the person in front of you, and then another pair of legs coming from behind you. It's a centipede of a different kind, right? Yes. That sounds like plenty was happening. I mean, I don't know what you mean. Yeah. Yes, except for the fact that I was wedged between John and Tony from the Levitar <laughs> show. So it's not exactly the room we wanted to be in. Okay. Not a lot of room, though. Not a lot of room. It was very cozy, very snug. And then 80 miles an hour down this track. Crazy. Life flashing before your eyes. And they tell you all these things about, like, don't pick your head up because then it'll just snap back. Wait, so Tony, when he went skydiving, they said to put his head back before he jumped out of the plane. This, you can't do that. Yeah. This might be very confusing. They tell you not to do that. But also not to put your head forward because then it'll just push down. The G-forces will not allow you to lift your head back up. So you have to basically shrug your shoulders and lock your neck in place and then Put your arms out into the interior of the bobsled, which is very spartanly decorated. There's not leather paddings, nothing. It's just metal. This is bobsledding. You grab onto these hooks and your arms are flayed out. Your shoulders are shrugged. And boom, we're going 80 miles an hour down this track. And sometimes you slide up this way and sometimes you slide up the other way. And a couple of times I thought we were going to do a loop-de-loop, but we didn't. It was exhilarating and terrifying all at once. It was like a roller coaster where you could actually die. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? 
what do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.